0: Welcome to Office Hours, the podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary. I'm Katie Wagenmaker. I run the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, and I earned my MA in Theological Studies here in 2008. Today on Office Hours, I'm talking with Dr. R. Scott Clark, Professor of Church History and Historical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California, and the host of Office Hours, about a new book just out, Caspar Livianus, Exposition of the Apostles' Creed. It's Volume 2 in the series Classic Reformed Theology. Scott is editor of two books, Protestant Scholasticism, Essays and Reassessment, and Covenant, Justification, and Pastoral Ministry. He's also the author of Caspar Olivian and the Substance of the Covenant, and Recovering the Reformed Confession, Our Theology, Piety, and Practice. All of these titles and more are available through the bookstore at wscal.edu slash bookstore. Scott also writes daily at heidelblog.wordpress.com and does his own podcast, The Heidelcast. You can find it on iTunes. Hi, Scott, and welcome to Office Hours. Thank you. This is great to be in this chair for once. I have control. So I have some questions for you on this new book out, The Exposition of the Apostles' Creed. Why this series?
1: Well, one of the things that I have noticed over the years is that uh, there is a lot of talk about what it is to be reformed, but many times people are not thinking about being reformed in terms of the people who invented, if you will, or formulated, founded shaped uh, Reformed theology, piety, and practice. And part of that is because people don't have access to the original texts in which our writers, our pastors, our theologians uh, began to express their original understanding uh, of the faith, uh, of the Scriptures, and uh, of the Reformed faith. And so, Several of us got together and uh, created this series, Classic Reformed Theology, and our goal is to put into translation some of the more important texts from the 16th and 17th century, from the classic period that that shaped uh, the way we read Scripture uh, and that illustrates the original uh, historic and perhaps even traditional way, a Reformed way, of of reading Scripture, and the way we worked out our conclusions from Scripture, not only in our our theology, which is what people think of, not only in the five points uh, from the Synod of Dort, uh, but also uh, in other areas of theology, and uh, in our piety, that is the way we relate to God, and in our practice, that is in the the churches, in the way that we gather for worship, in the way we conduct uh, the Christian life.
0: Well, what is classic Reformed theology?
1: It's that that shapes what we are. Uh, It's the original version, if you will, of Reformed theology. There have been a a, a lot, a number of versions of Reformed theology. There was a version of Reformed theology uh, in the early 18th century in the American colonial uh, revivals. There were versions of Reformed theology in the 19th century, Uh, for example, in – old school american presbyterianism and new school american presbyterianism there are versions of reformed theology in the 19th century in the netherlands uh, in the offskiding uh, uh, versions in the uh, what became the mainline denominations in the netherlands in uh, in the uk uh, and in north america and versions in the 20th century uh, some of those, perhaps many of those versions, are relative to the Reformed confessions and relative to the original Reformed theologians in the 16th and 17th century, in one way or another, idiosyncratic. And so we wanted to use the word classic to say these are the writers that originally shaped and formed um, what it was and what it what it is really to be Reformed. And so among those would be Calvin and Bootser uh, as well as the 17th century Orthodox theologians, will Labius and Bucanus and, and Polanus and uh, Van Maastricht. And as I say these names, you know, I'm conscious that many of these texts or many of the great works that these writers uh, produced aren't available to most readers, uh, particularly those who don't read Latin. Uh, because they've never been translated. For example, Amandus Polanis did a massive systematic theology called Sentences. I don't know very many people who've read it at all, and yet it's a magnificent uh, piece of work uh, that really gives uh, body and substance to the Reformed faith in the early part of the 17th century.
0: Is that your next project, translating those <laughs> works?
1: Well, the, the goal of the of the series is to get these kinds of books. Into uh, into publication. Right, uh, the volume that we have before us uh, today is uh, Caspar Olivianus' uh, exposition of the Apostles' Creed. That's volume two in the series. Volume one was uh, William Ames' sketches uh, of the Christian's Catechism. That's it's a collection of sermons that he preached in the seventeenth century on the uh, Heidelberg Catechism, and we have other works. We have a a really big project forthcoming. We're not going to say what that is because we want it to be a surprise, but we think people will be pleased with that. Uh, We uh, have um, our reasons, uh, dogmatics, or systematic theology forthcoming. That's uh, translated, and now we're beginning the editorial work on that. Uh, We're working on uh, getting another really important 17th century text uh into translation that's a, a few years off and uh we have a few other projects in the pipeline so uh, it's early days as they say for the series but we have uh, big goals big dreams and we're we're working on gathering translators uh, because it's a, a really big job to sit down with you know 16th and 17th century latin texts some of them very very large and to uh, to do the work of getting those into english accurately but also readably uh, in a way that, that is uh, useful for people. So, we no, we don't have a translator for Polanis uh, uh, Syntagma yet, his sentences, but uh, that's on our list of, of things to do.
0: So I have a, another question. Um, it, when I hear you describe the series, I would think that it would be geared more toward the upper echelon of students, but who exactly is classic Reformed theology geared towards?
1: Well, it's geared for people who are interested in this sort of thing. So yeah, you're exactly right. Seminary students, uh, faculty members, profs, um, pastors, elders. But uh, in fairness, anyone with an interest in wanting to be Reformed or knowing the Reformed faith could read, for example, Ames's uh, sermons on the Heidelberg Catechism, and in fact, uh, this exposition of the Apostles' Creed by Caspar Olivianus, uh, which is available in the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California right now, could uh, could read this with profit, because neither of these two volumes are terribly technical. There, there's a little bit of Greek in them, uh, which is explained. There's a little bit of Latin in them, uh, which is also translated and explained. Uh, so it's these are not terribly technical works, whereas when we get to some of the later projects, they may be a little more technical and a, and a little more advanced. but just about anyone who can read who has an interest in understanding the scriptures, uh, who uh, you know wants to know more about being reformed, wants to grow in their own theology, piety, and practice could could read these volumes and benefit from them
0: could you Uh, summarize in a few sentences what the previous volume is about, the Ames volume?
1: It's a series of sermons, uh, a really wonderful and creative, uh, interesting collection of sermons by William Ames on the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, Some people maybe have never heard a catechism sermon, but it is a practice of the German, French, uh, and uh, Dutch Reformed churches, and I think others as well. I know there are collections of sermons on the Westminster Shorter Catechism by uh, Watson and others. So uh, there is an old Reformed practice that uh, we think is making a comeback, and that is uh, in the afternoon or second service uh, on the Lord's Day or the Sabbath, Reformed congregations would gather, and the ministers, uh, beginning with Calvin and and even before Calvin, would exposit uh, one of the Reformed confessions or really they're expositing the scriptures but they're expositing expositing or explaining the scriptures in a sort of topical way using a catechism or a confession or a creed in this case the Heidelberg catechism as a sort of guide for summarizing the teaching of scripture and so it's scripture that's being exposited but using uh, the Heidelberg catechism as a guide and so asking the questions uh, that the catechism is asking, and then giving the answers, and then explaining from Scripture why the Reformed churches confess what they do. So the Heidelberg begins, you know, what is your only comfort in life in life, and in death? And Ames explains why we ask that question. Ames explains why we give the answer we do, that uh, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he works his way through the catechism. So if you want to know how uh, Reformed Christians and significant Reformed Christians, such as William Ames, who's one of the really formative theologians in the early 17th century, both in uh, the the English-speaking Reformed world, but also in the Dutch-speaking Reformed world. And and those two uh, streams, if you will, sort of come uh, into confluence in the New World. Ames's library uh, is a foundational library for Harvard College, Uh, It was built on his library, uh, and uh, he influenced generations of Reformed theologians in the Netherlands uh, who then were influential on, you know, Reformed pastors and teachers in the New World. And so if we want to see how he was reading and hearing and understanding and explaining the Reformed faith in his setting and then learn from that, uh, that's a great volume
0: in which to do that. Now, after this break, I would like to ask you more about the original author of the Exposition of the Apostles' Creed, Olivianus.
1: In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character, Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where we've been fulfilling his vision of training men for ministry and preparing them to be expert in the Bible for 30 years. WSCAL.edu 888 480 8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church.
0: This is Office Hours, and today I'm talking to R. Scott Clark, Professor of Church History at Westminster Seminary, California. Dr. Clark, we're going to be discussing more about Caspar Olivianus' Exposition of the Apostles' Creed and uh, this new title that you edited. So I wanted to ask, who was Caspar Olivianus? And am I pronouncing his name correctly?
1: You are pronouncing his name correctly. Good, thank you. Mu- you. you must have gone to a very good school. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes he's called Casper Olivian. His his German name is Van Olivegg, which uh, is uh, probably a reference to the street from which the family or on which the family lived. The, uh, they lived on uh, Straße. Uh, yeah, we call him Olivianus. That's his Latin name. It was the custom of pastors, teachers, intellectuals, academics to give themselves a Greek or a Latin name in the 16th and 17th century. And so he simply Latinized his name. Olivianus is famous for being uh, one of the uh, primary authors, editors of the Heidelberg Catechism. The primary author of the Catechism is probably... Uh, Most certainly, Zachary or Zacharias or Sinus, who wrote the famous commentary or or published his lectures on the Heidelberg Catechism. But Olivianus was a significant figure in Heidelberg, in the Palatinate, uh, in the late 16th century. He's a German uh, theologian, raised Roman Catholic, went off to university in France, where he met uh, evangelicals, which in the 16th century meant Protestants who followed fundamentally Martin Luther's doctrine of. Justification. He met some of those, uh, was converted to the evangelical cause, uh, became a Protestant, became a, a fiery Protestant. Uh, studied in Geneva briefly, and uh, was exhorted by Theodore uh, Beza or Theodore de Bez uh, to go back to um, his hometown Trier in Germany. Uh, it's a famous, a little bit a somewhat famous city uh, in Germany. It's a place where Athanasius was banished. Uh, it's uh, Karl Marx's a hometown, and, and uh, also famous for having lots of uh, relics uh, venerated in the uh, Roman Catholic tradition. Now, he went back to his hometown, and he began preaching the Reformation. Well, he was teaching school, which sort of developed into a kind of a spontaneous church. They petitioned the city council to hold the worship services, and so Olivianus began preaching. Uh, and uh, As often happens, he sort of split the town right in half, and and the evangelicals were for him, and uh, the more, in a sense, traditional Roman Catholics were against him. Eventually, uh, Olivianus ended up in jail when the uh, prince bishop came back to town. He'd been away a little bit, came back and found the the city in an uproar, and uh, gathered up the uh, evangelical leaders and threw them in jail. And Olivianus was bailed out of jail by Frederick III who was the Elector Palatinate, basically the the governor of Heidelberg and the surrounding area. And so um, Olivianus ended up essentially the uh, sort of district supervisor of the churches in Heidelberg. He taught in the university briefly. Uh, where he was uh, given a a doctorate, and then he taught in the seminary known by its Latin name. It's a former monastery, but known by its Latin name as the Collegium Sepientiae, the College of Wisdom. He taught in that seminary from about 1561 until all the Reformed were expelled in 1576. He went on to found a school a little bit north of Heidelberg in in a city named Herborn, Uh, And that school became very influential, produced a number of significant figures, and he he finished up his life and ministry dying in uh, 1587. Livianus is one of the more significant figures in the early Reformed tradition for a variety of reasons. Uh, First, he was a significant biblical commentator. We're not aware of that today because most of those commentaries haven't been translated, although I'm working on his uh, Romans commentary. It's a seven hundred page Latin commentary, so it may be a while before that. Don't ask me when that was when right. that's <laughs> going to appear in the series because <laughs> I don't know. But um, he also uh, wrote commentaries on a, a number of other Pauline epistles and on the Gospels, and uh, as I say, none of those have been translated, so we're not really. Awa- Most people probably aren't aware of those, but they're um, they're interesting and and they give you know insight into the way Reformed folks are reading the Scriptures in the late sixteenth century. He also wrote. Uh, commentaries on the Apostles' Creed. This is one of them, Exposition of the Apostles' Creed. He wrote some popular catechisms. He wrote a farmer's catechism. Uh, He also did a work called uh, Vesta Grund Firm Foundation, which is uh, translated by Lyle Birma, who did the translation of this volume uh, as well. He also uh, wrote a a major work on covenant theology on the uh, substance of the covenant of grace between God and the elect— and that has yet to be translated. That's next on the, on the hit parade. I okay. Hope. And that book actually became very influential in the development uh, of Reformed covenant theology as he is one of the first really to lay out a comprehensive approach to Scripture, taking into account the covenants of Scripture as sort of the organizing principle. And uh, one of the most significant covenant theologians of the 17th century, Johannes Coxeus, said that he was only picking up where uh, Olivianus had left off.
0: What other reformers did he come in contact with? You said Beza. He was
1: a student of Calvin. He was also in Zurich for a while, and so he was exposed to the teaching of Heinrich Bullinger. Uh, He was deeply influenced by Beza, uh, Theodore Beza. And so those are the the main folks. He, uh, He was also influenced, I think, by other writers in the sixteenth century, people didn't tell you always whom they were reading, except if they were citing a, a church father or, or someone like that. But otherwise, they tended not. There, there, there are no footnotes, and occasionally you get parenthetical references, or or, or somebody might make a, uh, you know, a notation. You know, here I'm thinking about Augustine or or Jerome or or whomever. So it's not entirely clear. But all of the writers he met, he we know that he gathered at colloquies where the Reformed and the Lutherans would gather to discuss various ideas and argue back and forth about the supper and and about uh, predestination and and other such things. But um, in terms of influences, probably his chief influence is uh, John Calvin. He taught through, he being Olivianus, taught through the institutes uh, every year. And uh, he made his own synopsis. That is, he produced a sort of abbreviated one-volume version of the Institutes for his students, sort of cutting some discussions down, omitting some discussions that he thought were probably less relevant for his students, and uh, sort of boiling it down. In fact, that was a f- fairly common practice, and his was one of the first and one of the more significant synopses of the Institutes. And so he used that as a sort of textbook in the seminary as he lectured to generally youngish Students from the UK, obviously from uh, uh, various districts in what we today call Germany and elsewhere.
0: So it seems like, from what you're saying, he was very important in the reform tradition. uh, But yet, why is he not that well known? Why aren't a lot of his works translated? Well,
1: I think he's not as well known as he as he might be, uh, for a couple of reasons. One. In the 19th century, a lot of people could still read Latin, and so they didn't need an English translation. uh, I should say up to the 19th century. But from the middle of the 19th century, increasingly Latin instruction uh, began to decline, and and as that happened, these texts became less and less accessible. At the same time, uh, the Western Church was really under a massive intellectual assault from the Enlightenment. Uh, In the 16th—well, really, the From the middle of the 17th century and especially uh, and more intensively into the 18th and 19th centuries, there was a a significant intellectual movement in the universities and uh, in other places. Uh, to say, in effect, look, the Christian faith is no longer credible to reasonable, intelligent people. We need a different way of looking at the world. And so the church was very busy responding to those criticisms of Scripture and those criticisms of the plausibility and the truthfulness of the Christian faith. And as we focused on those things, we were rather less focused on getting things like Olivianus translated and and into print. So he— he was translated a little bit in the in the uh, 16th century in what today we think of as the UK, particularly England. He was read in Scotland, and we know he was read in the Netherlands. He was translated into Dutch as well. Uh, so he had a fairly significant influence in the 16th and 17th century. In the 18th and 19th century, uh, his influence seems to have declined, judging by you know the relative lack of republication and mention of his work. And in the 19th century, a sort of romantic picture developed of him that really had not much basis in history. Uh, some even had him as the primary author of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, and in fact, I think today we know that's, uh, that's not the case. Uh, I, I find him interesting because of his formative place in, in shaping what we think of today as covenant theology. Uh, he's, a, as I think Lyle Birma rightly says, a transitional figure from the very earliest stages of covenant theology in the 1520s, 30s, and 40s. But uh, he begins to give us ways of thinking and talking about covenant theology that we still use today. I mean, he he talks of the basic three-covenant scheme that we have inherited from the Reformed Orthodox in the 17th century. Uh, The covenant before history with the Father, between the Father and the Son, sometimes called the Council of Peace or the Covenant of Redemption. The first covenant in history, the the covenant of works between uh, God and Adam, and Adam is the representative of all humanity, the federal head of all humanity and then the covenant of grace which is grounded in eternity but which comes to expression in history uh, after the fall in the promise of a seed.
0: So regarding this this new book exposition of the apostles creed for those who may not know what is the apostles creed?
1: The creed is a short 12 article summary of the Christian faith that was developed Early on in the history of the Christian church, probably from a Roman baptismal creed or the Roman baptismal interrogation, that is, the church in Rome, as they were training converts and uh, as the converts were making profession of faith, uh, these basic questions uh, produced uh, formulaic or they were taught, the Christians were taught sort of formulaic answers in a catechetical uh, method, and they they were... uh, formalized in the articles of the Apostles' Creed, which reached their final form probably uh, as late as uh, 570 uh, A.D. We know the apostles themselves didn't write the Apostles' Creed, but through much of the history of the Church until the Renaissance, it was regarded as a genuinely apostolic production. In fact, some thought of, you know, either 12 articles, 12 apostles, and so they assigned an article to an apostle by this by the reformation uh, we knew better but we we knew it uh, also as a good clear brief summary a universally accepted summary uh, and it was a way for the reformed churches to say to particularly their roman catholic critics hey we're not teaching any novelty we're teaching the same faith that was taught in scripture the same faith that was received by the early church that was corrupted by the medieval church and uh, we're simply returning To the earliest expression uh, of the Christian faith, and so there was there were a number of uh, commentaries on the Apostles' Creed uh, in the in the Reformation. Not least of which is Calvin's Institutes, which to which a large section is devoted uh, that is explaining the Apostles' Creed. And there were a number of other uh, expositions of the Creed. In fact, Olivianus did three or four at least. The, the Farmer's Catechism is very, very brief, and then you have Firm Foundation, which is a little more extensive, and then you have this volume, The Exposition of the Apostles' Creed, which is a little more extensive than that, and then finally a De Substanti, or The Substance of the Covenant of Grace, which is a, a large section of which is an explanation of covenant theology under the heading of the Apostles' Creed.
0: So this this book sounds like a great resource for churches, for pastors, for I mean even giving it to someone who has a question about the reformed faith and if they you know if they uh, are interested in this type of thing it sounds like a great a great book to give them.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, Olivianus was a pastor. He preached every Lord's Day. In fact, he preached twice on the lord's day he taught catechism uh, he worked with people he wasn't a remote distant academic who was sort of unaware of the the struggles of of god's people and so he was right in the midst of them in fact at one point he and ursinus uh, were among the only ones to stay in heidelberg when the plague hit and they stayed in order to fulfill their pastoral vocation to minister to the sick and the dying and so uh, Olivianus is a, is a theologian. Uh, he's a biblical theologian. He's a catechetical theologian. He's a, a systematic theologian in a sense that's a little bit anachronistic in this context. Uh, but uh, he's also a pastor. And so, yes, I, I think uh, almost anyone can read this explanation of the Reformed faith and, and understand it. One of the interesting aspects of this book is the way he relates the kingdom to the covenant. And um, I had not read this work for, uh, you know, sort of comprehensively end-to-end for a number of years. I, obviously, I had worked through it pretty carefully when I did the, the book on Olivianus's Covenant Theology, but when this uh, project came to us at the at the series uh, classic reformed theology i had a chance to go through it you know many times looking at the various drafts and i'm very impressed with the thoughtful careful and even creative way that olivianus synthesizes the biblical categories of covenant and kingdom uh, my theory is that he lived in a sort of feudal world where uh, the notions of covenant and kingdom really weren't uh, divorced for him the way they are for us, or the way they tend to be. I mean, here we are in a modern republic you know, system of government. We don't have a king, and we don't live in a feudal society. And so uh, some of these ways of thinking, which are probably closer to biblical ways of thinking, are a little bit distant from us. And so I, in that way, I think this book is particularly valuable.
0: So what is coming up next in the Classic Reform Theology series? And can you give us any kind of um, hint?
1: We're looking at doing a, a work... Uh, In fact, we're working on it right now by a 17th century Dutch theologian who was uh, a student, um, at least in literary terms, of Francis Turretin. And he did his own uh, systematic work, but influenced by Turretin. And so uh, th- that's probably the next thing that will appear, and uh, that's in the draft stage now. We have a, a wonderful introduction by Wes White, and he did the translation, and we're working through that. And we have a couple of other projects coming up, and I'm not going to say quite what they are yet because they're, they're still in the early stages. But they are very significant 17th century Reformed texts about which people have spoken a lot and written a lot But judging from the academic literature, it doesn't seem that people have actually read them very often. And so this will give people a chance, not only scholars who will be interested in these texts, but pastors and elders and students and others to read some of the most important and formative texts in the Reformed tradition.
0: That's it for this edition of Office Hours. Thanks for listening. I'm Katie Wagenmaker. Thanks to our producer, Robert Riccio, to Young Me for our graphics, and to Adam Klaus for technical assistance. You can listen to Office Hours online at wscal.edu slash officehours, or subscribe and download it to your iPod or MP3 player. We want to hear from you. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. For more information about this program or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 1-888-480-8474. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.